Hello, everybody. I'm Steve, and I'm here today with Kayla Frost, the award-winning author of Escape Reality. Kayla, thanks for... Yeah, there you go. Yours has a cool sticker on it, though. I don't have the cool sticker. <laughs> so thanks for, for taking the time to sit down and chat with me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it. It's been, you know, we, we planned it out a, a while back and we're, we're finally here. So it's yeah. been, I've been looking forward to it. Me too, for sure. Yeah. So what was it like to to be told that you won the, I have to make sure I get this right, the Reader, <laughs> the reader Views Literary Awards, uh, the Gold Award? What was it like to to win that? It, it was actually hilarious because I was, um, I have a stand in my kitchen where I hang some ornamental wine glasses and uh, I like whooped what and I broke glass <laughs> whenever I won because I, I was refreshing the face because I knew it was going to be revealed that day and I totally was just showered with glass and luckily didn't get harmed. Oh. But that was <laughs> so I was excited. <laughs> so but you didn't get cut or anything right? No thank oh, okay. but I did ruin a glass so. <laughs> Yeah, it's okay. It's a worth. Uh, I think it's a worthy cause to ruin a glass for, though. I, that's Definitely. The, I, I am beyond honored. The people at Reader Views are amazing. Uh, the lady who reviewed it, Sherry, she just um, her review of my book was probably the most touching because it felt as if she was me, like the way I saw my book, and it it really touched my heart the way she wrote it out. And then to win, based upon her review and some other readers' view at their organization, was it meant a lot to me. Yeah, well, definitely. It was like yeah. a funny moment, but dangerous. It sounds like something I would do. I would do something like that. I would hit a ceiling fan or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, so uh, what is that process like? Do you have to submit your, your book to be considered, or, or what is yeah. that? How does that work? So um, you submit your, your book. I mailed in, like, I think, I can't remember how many copies I mailed in, but I mailed in hard copies. And uh, with all of the restrictions in place, you just send them in some Competitions don't even let you send in hard copies as e-copies, luckily. I was trying to find one that let me send in uh, hard copies because, I don't know, I just, I liked to, I liked the process of actually mailing it and filling out the form. Um, I kind of nerded out over that, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a pretty simple process. You choose the categories you want to be considered for, and then you wait. They review it. The cool thing about reader reviews, though, is you actually get a review from the person. A lot of them I was checking out and I didn't end up submitting to were um, they don't actually tell you who reads your book. You don't even know if they read your book. Here you have a person's name associated with you, know exactly who reviewed it. You know the process, where they're at in the process. So it was a, it was a wonderful experience start to finish. Wow. How, what was, how long was that process from the time you mailed it in until when you heard? Seven months. It was. It's not fast because they read the whole thing, and uh, it's a non-trivial process process for them to mail it out to the readers. So they receive the books, then mail them out. Uh, from what I understand, so it takes a bit, but I think a wonderful. So who, yeah. So who who is selected to to how do how do they determine who reads the books or who the readers are? Is it like a panel that does it every year, or? I think they. Um, specifically choose fellow authors or other uh, literary enthusiasts, people who have some uh, background in the study and or practice of writing and have a inter an interest in the specific genre 
and or category that you've elected to be judged upon. So mine was specifically in the category of, I believe, first time, no, no, I believe it was, I did sci-fi for sure. And then I did a regional uh, one and I won the sci-fi one. So I was happy with that. A really well-deserving author won the regional one for South of the U.S. So I'm happy right. with the sci-fi goal. I will take that any day. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> I'll just tell you congratulations. That's awesome to, to win something like that. Yeah. And your first novel, that's a huge accomplishment. No, <laughs> it's been really well received reading my first novel. I, I can't complain at all. Yeah. So, so, no. so <laughs> yes. So, so for people who aren't familiar with escape reality, how would you how would you explain it to them? Okay, I would explain it as kind of like what you said in your review. I really liked it, by the way. Um, you don't have to say that because I'm here. It's okay. <laughs> no, I did. It was fun. I, I agree with a lot of what you said about kind of taking your time, going with the flow. And uh, that leads me to why I call it a, a sci-fi thriller. Because with a lot of mystery or thriller books, you don't have all the information. I write in third person. Um, I don't write in omnipotent wording i write in limited wording so you only know as much as the characters do so if there is a fair amount of mystery to them then you're going to feel that same level of what's going on in that process but i do reveal along the way so that's why i consider it kind of a thriller because it keeps you at the edge of questioning what's going to happen next and then on top of that i would say it's hard science fiction because i do incorporate a great deal of science and um I, there aren't, it's a non-trivial amount of characters as well. So I'm taking a broad range of characters and sort of sewing a tapestry of many threads to create a story. Hmm. If that's legible. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how much did, and you mentioned on, on the book, you mentioned you're an engineer as a, your, your, uh, your day job. Yeah. Um, when you're not writing. So how did, how did your, your knowledge and your education and your experience with being an engineer help with, wording and, and structuring and, and everything on the book? A tremendous amount. Because it's hard science fiction, I, I wanted to make sure that if we're, we're dealing with a ship that has an artificial sense of gravity, that I'm being, uh, that I'm honoring physics and I'm not just kind of <laughs> jabbering on without any clue. So I took a great deal of time and I had some of my beta readers were fellow scientists so they could point out any issues that I missed when I was going through it. So I really wanted to make sure that there was a level of authenticity, even if it's a novel that's set in the great distant future, it still is based in uh, physical things and interpretations according to our current principles of physics. So um, I wanted it to be believable, even if it's set in a rather fantastic part of time. You know, I noticed that about, especially about gravity, that it, there was things that usually don't get mentioned in science fiction books that was in this book that I thought, well, I never, really thought of that but it's a really dangerous place to be you would imagine oh, yeah. even yeah yeah actually one of my beta readers worked uh, as an engineer relating to the international space station and stuff so it was fun having conversations and making sure that more physics made sense and we're up to snuff for um that terrain and it is a very harsh environment especially on the thermodynamic side of things um not just talking about atmospheric pressure in a suit to make sure that you don't uh, make sure you stay in one piece, basically. <laughs> but beyond that, keeping your uh, keeping you warm up there, it's it's quite a conundrum to scientists who work in that field. That's not my particular study. I'm not a mechanical engineer, but yeah, um, yeah I'm more on the computer side of things. So you, you actually had uh, physicists and scientists read as beta readers that read through and, and told yes, you what? Yes, beta readers are both uh, in computer science and engineering fields that relate to, yeah. 
Wow, that's really cool. That's, that's a good that's a good touch, and especially in a book like this. It wants to have confidence in saying, "Okay, yeah, I'm, this is solid science. I'm not just kind of jabbering on with nonsense." So. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for Escape Reality, how long? When did you start the process of working on it? How long did it take you to to write? So. I started the first chapter probably, uh, I was finishing up my undergraduate degree at the time. And so the idea of sort of escaping into another world was really nice at the time. <laughs> so that kind of generated uh, the start of the novel, but that would have been from start to finish, it took me about three and a half years to write the draft and another half year to go through all my edits and uh, work with an editor to make sure it was really polished and ready learning how to produce an independently published novel is a non-trivial process where you have a great deal of learning to do in order to make sure you check all the boxes so that it's uh, done correctly and not immediately thrown out of Amazon for being bad. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure the product I gave to people was worth their money and time. So I did spend a fair amount of time making sure it was good. So you had about three and a half years for the manuscript and edit my initial edits, and then about a half or more year of going through edits, polishing, creating the graphics, doing all of that. So around four years plus. So uh, you mentioned getting your your book published on Amazon. Did you ever, did you ever consider getting it uh, published by a major publisher or going a different route? I, I considered it for a very short period of time. Um, I think I wrote all of one query letter to a representative <laughs> and it was before I even sent my book to an editor and hired an editor to go through it. So it was really unpolished when I sent it to him. So I'm not surprised that they did not contact me. Um, but at a certain point I realized I had a certain vision for the novel and where the story is going to go. And I look at all of these people on Twitter and other platforms that are trying to get their story just to be accepted by a publisher or have a literary agent. And they're already going to have to make a ton of concessions on the story, just be sort of marketable for whatever's in fashion for that time frame mm -hmm. in the publishing world. And although it's nice to kind of have, throw your worries to someone else so that they handle all the business aspects of it, I, seeing as I do have sort of uh, my finances in order that I can take a risk on myself and kind of trust my own judgment when it comes to the story and let that let my creativity flow as it will. I didn't want to wait three years for someone just to accept my book. Instead, I'd like to have three books published in three years. That would be far nicer for me as an author because then I'm going to be improving as I go. I'm going to be uh, building connections like, hey, hi, we met. <laughs> we yeah. met if I'd gone the traditional route. So I didn't see much of, um, I, I'm an unknown entity in, in the publishing world. You kind of need to be known in order to get a deal as an unknown person. Plus this is a bigger novel. Most, when I was reading, most people require it to be under a hundred K words. This is a little bit over that. Hmm. So I was in a position where they probably want me to cut about 30% of the book's um, density, which imagine what that would have done to the story. Yeah, I can imagine so, that. I didn't like the what I was reading about the concessions that early authors have to make. And I was like, why? Let me let me build up my brand. And if someone sees my book that's in a publishing house that likes it later on, we'll see what happens. But 
I've enjoyed the process as an indie author, and there's an amazing indie community. I know that was a long-winded answer, and I'm sorry, but <laughs> yeah, that's that's what that's that's what I, that's the kind of thing that, that I like to do. I'm, it's it's fascinating to me the experience that every author has with publishing, whether they try and, and write a, a thousand query letters and and they deal with that rejection. I, I can't imagine working so hard on a book and then dealing with all those rejections. And I'm, I'm sure no matter who you are, you deal with that rejection. And it, it must be so frustrating to have something that you're so proud of that you can't get out into the world. Yeah. And I was reading so many people, they do revision after revision because they'll do their query letters, they'll send in a manuscript, and if they don't even get answers half the time back from people. And I was like, do I want to wait six months for a person to, to respond, to just give me a rejection, or even just, hey, send us the rest of your manuscript? Uh, and I know it's different everywhere. Some people are probably going to be like, that's not how it was for me. I'm sure it's different, and obviously I haven't gone through it, so I'm not the, uh, I'm not the source you should go to on, on what it is to go the traditional route. But I can say that I was able to get up, get started, and get rolling a lot faster mm -hmm. in the indie lane than the than the uh, the publishing house lane, and I've enjoyed that speed. And I'm already about 40k words into my second book, so wow. that allows me to to feel like I can answer my fans faster because I already have several people like, "When's the next book?" <laughs> so, That's one of my questions. <laughs> So I want to be able to keep going and not have those hurdles in the way of uh, creating the story. And you mentioned the the indie community. There's so many great books out there, and and like you said, it's you find so many different kinds of stories, and and those books feel more I guess you could say genuine to me, like because it's they're, they're not watered down, they're not cut and chopped and and turned upside down just to please, yeah. So there's so many great, and I. I can't keep up with all of them, but there's so many of them and it's, it's such a, and it feels like a really supporting community. Uh, it is. Um, you would think it'd be like rife with competition and inviting, but I have yet to find anyone be rude to me in the indie com community. They've all been very welcoming and supportive and kind. So yeah, I've, I have nothing but positive things to say about fellow indie writers and people in that space, which is why on my channel I'm, very occasionally, not regularly, <laughs> posting indie reviews for other books that I read because I think that it's a space that's not paid a lot of mind because we only have so much time to dedicate to reading, so publishing house books get a lot of love. But I, I'm hoping to share that to the indie community a little bit. Yeah, I thought your focus on your channel was great because you gave a different a, a perspective that I don't I don't think is on YouTube oh, right yeah. now. I mean, it's but it was it's really interesting to see someone who's, who's been there and done it to give their perspective and their suggestions or tips. And I'm not, I don't have the talent or the skill to be a writer, but if I were, I would want someone I'm sure you like do. that to no, <laughs> have that talent. I, I admire those of you, those of you who do, but I don't have that. That's why it's, um, but if, if I was, and I'd, I'd really want someone like that to, to look to for tips and for advice and someone I can kind of, uh, you know, to help me out. So I thought that was a great idea for, for a channel. Cool. I'm glad you like it. I mean, it's definitely a baby channel and I'm a brand new author, so I'm not uh, a veteran in the industry by any stretch of the imagination. So this is all basically my opinion and circumstance oh, yeah. that I'm speaking to, but um, I hope that I can help. I've had several people, whenever I did a little blog on sort of the 13 steps to publish, there was one lady who responded um, and she was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I went through or something like that. And it was 
it was cute to see that. Yeah, we mentioned publishing. It's it's I've I've only spoken with a few authors, but it seems like all of them have a different type of experience or different thoughts on on their journey of, of getting their first book out there. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very it's just so fascinating to me the the steps it takes and the the work and and must be really stressful and am I doing this right and <laughs> and you have to get you have to and I did I just learned this the other day but you have to when you submit your book to a place like Amazon you actually have to tell them how everything's laid out in the book like the margins and and the fonts and everything is that right so I used Kindle Create and that helped oh. cut out a lot of the um, worries in that respect on formatting because they've created an interface, an application that goes onto your, your local device that you're able to import your word or whatever format you're using a manuscript directly into that interface. And then from there, we're going to be editing in accordance to what they res- they expect. And once you're finished, you kind of export it into a, a KDP or an Amazon ready file that they will translate pretty much one-to-one or exactly you're not a tech person (laughs) (laughs) they'll translate that exactly into the format for kindle so the only problem there is they don't export it back into word or any other format as of right now from what i remember so you need to make sure that you're fully ready before you import so that any small changes that you make aren't lost in that transition if you ever want to branch away and go somewhere else or do anything like that. So I found it very helpful. They have several different styles you can choose from and you can sort of uh, play with it to make it your own. And that's what I did. And you're able to add images. Uh, you can't really format the images directly in that interface. You'll be able, you'll have to do that before you upload the manuscript. But yeah, hmm. I found that to be the easiest way to make sure that when I published the book, that I knew the format it was going to be in was crisp and not going to be some mistranslated amalgamation between two formats. Yeah. So if if like let's say there is a misspelled word on what you on on your version, no one's going to stop and say well, you might want to look at this. You you spelled this word wrong. Once you send it, that's it, right? That's what that's, you send. Is, yeah. That's why editing is so important. A lot of indie authors, I think, in their haste and desire to have the project to be finished and all of that weight to be lifted from them they don't go through a lot of edits. I went through innumerable edits. I read read and reread and reread and reread my book so many times before I published it. I had at least three beta readers. I had my editor that redlined the whole thing and gave me notes. So I had a lot of eyes on it before I went to press the publish button so that I could be, I could rest assured that if there were errors, they'd be so few and far between that it would still be a very good product. But you do make typos. Everyone makes typos. I mean, anyone who's ever sent an email, you can reread it a couple times, but your brain will kind of input missing words and letters on your first reread because you're so close to that subject matter. You're like, oh, I put a B there, but there's no B there because you're reading so fast. It's only when someone else reads it, they're like, that's missing a B. So it's important that you have other eyes on your manuscript before you publish it. I know it's like, easy to just do it all yourself, but you really do need to offload some of that and delegate. It's not as expensive as you might think to hire a good editor. There's a lot of services out there. So this is what I would recommend to other authors. So you go through this whole process, you you write the book, you you read it again, you edit, you send it out to an editor, you have beta, you, this whole process. And the book is, you hit that, pub, that publish button 
What is that feeling like? Scary, scary, scary. Oh my gosh, heart just pounding in your chest, freaking out, but also elation, absolute elation because this is the culmination of four years of labor. This is your brain baby put onto the internet and that does fill you with a mild amount of trepidation, but it also makes you excited to see what can come of it. And I think the best part of this entire experience was some of my first reviews were international. They were from places like France and uh, Britain, someone in uh, Australia reached out. And these individuals, it is so cool to think that I made one of their days a little cooler or fun, or they enjoyed it because they had positive things to say about it. And to think that what you did couldn't impact someone in a positive way like that, it's an indescribable feeling of joy to think that you've done something good like that. Not that this is some sort of blessing unto the world or anything like that, but <laughs> it's it's cool. It's like a painting. You can appreciate a painting in a non-dramatic fashion. It's like, oh, that, that made this room a little bit prettier sort of a thing. Yeah. yeah. So once you once you hit that publish button and, and the book is out there, what, what kind of things did you do to help get the word out? Because you hit the publish button and it's yeah. it's there with, I'm sure, thousands of other books that are getting published every day or, you know, every week or Oh, what have you, but no, every sure day. Time. It is it's it every day? Same amount. You can look at the the latest published. There's actually an app, an, an on you can filter out the latest published books on Amazon, and it's a gargantuan number of books, and you kind of just get lost in the madness. But you can get Amazon. Uh, Unlim- Kindle Unlimited is amazing for yeah. brand authors. Personally, speaking from my experience, pair that with a good Amazon ad that's non-intrusive. I, I really stuck at uh, advertising because I don't like to be annoying to people. I don't want to like pop up in their face. Hi, I read my book. Yeah. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to be annoying. So I thought I'm not the best advertiser. But I did get on Twitter. I did start build, uh, building relationships with people within the community. Uh, some word of mouth people that I knew would be like, oh, there's this new book. Uh, but not a great deal. The main thing was my editor said, hey, enter your book into contests. My editor said, it could win. He goes, sci-fi is a hard area to get into, but your book is good. Enter it into contest. You never, contest, you never know what's going to happen. And lo and behold, we got a sticker. So wow. <laughs> it just takes believing yourself a little bit putting yourself out there, getting on Twitter, getting on Amazon. Uh, so they have some ads that aren't too expensive. You can put it to the price range that you find acceptable. And um, the Kindle Unlimited thing has been the coolest for me because more people are giving it a chance. It's not, oh, I'm going to pay $4 to try this book out from an unknown entity like myself. It's more like, hey, I'm already paying $9 a month. I'll try out this book. And if I don't like it, I can quit halfway through. And yeah. so there's not as much uh, of a hindrance for new readers to, to, to try it out. And so that's been wonderful. You know, it was really eye-opening to me because for so long, I and I, I love the feeling of having the book and, and you know, <laughs> so I, and I love being able to, you know, have tabs and things like that. But after I spoke with Richard Nell, he explained the process of how Kindle Unlimited works. And I thought I was helping by buying the book and I, I want the book. So I thought it's a win-win and it's, I'm helping the author, but actually reading the whole book on Kindle Unlimited might be even more beneficial to an author. Is that right? It depends. So this okay. is direct, uh, it change, the amount that you get paid each uh, Kindle Unlimited month cycle, they do, um, the, the price does change. 
hmm. based upon how many pages were read. And they have their own algorithms for determining allocation of those funds. But you get paid on a per page basis. However, if you have a small novel, like something that's only 40K words or 60K words, and you're, say, charging a person 99 cents for purchasing the novel, whereas if they were to, say, read the whole novel through Kindle Unlimited, you might actually get paid more for the per page basis rather than the 99 cents. However, for larger novels, if you have a higher price point, you might actually be getting a little bit more for the paperback version versus Kindle Unlimited. And I think mine are all very similar for rewards. I think by a small, tiny margin, the paperback is a little bit more for me, but only by cents. So they're all pretty equitable, and I made it so so that they all, that no matter which way people purchased, it was the same. But uh, yeah, the Kindle Unlimited does fluctuate though. Interesting. That's so interesting to me how that works. Yeah, it's really interesting. I found it fun too. Like, it's an unknown gem in the reading industry. I don't think a lot of people realize how many books are on there and how much uh, it gives unknown authors like me a chance to shine when they otherwise would just be overwhelmed with all the other books available on the market. And you're like, look at me. And everyone's saying that at once. And it's just noise. Yeah, sure. exactly. <laughs> it's hard to stand out, right? It's, I mean, you know, thankfully you, well, thankfully you were, you were, uh, your editor mentioned to submit it to uh, content. That's, that's awesome. I mean, would you have done that if not for, for him saying that? I might not have because there's a lot of blogs out there saying, oh, most of these are a scam. And I don't disagree that there are a lot of people in this industry right now that see the innumerable indie authors as potential sources of revenue mm. in not a nice way. So you do have to be smart about the sources that you look into for um competitions. I found competitions that hidden on a page in tiny, tiny print, they'd say, Hey, guess what? There's no guarantee. We'll read your whole book. We're good at discerning whether or not a book is good enough to be read in its entirety, which means they could basically look at the cover of the book and go, eh, we'll just take your $200 and run. And they'll wait for the people who have publishing house books to submit theirs and be like, well, at least they have a book. We know this one would be good. You have no control over that. Whereas with wow. reading reviews, the reason I chose that is you get a review, whether it's good or bad, you have no control over it. If they hate your book, they'll tell you. And <laughs> so you submit it and you're at their mercy for an honest review, but you also have that assurance that someone is actually reading it cover to cover and going to post their review on their website for the world to see. Wow. I never even, that never even occurred to me that that kind of thing goes on. You would, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have ever thought that. So when you say that that they see newer authors as a source of revenue. That's they, they take advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. Scammers, but yeah. I, you have to just be smart about what the services they're offering. Cause I mean, they're technically telling you all of the information a lot of times on the website saying, Hey, there's no guarantee, but a lot of authors, when they submit, they think that their book is going to be read in its entirety. So I just was really thorough about which ones I submitted to. And um, I chose a couple and luckily reader views, saw fit to give me an award. I noticed on some of the other ones I submitted, not a single indie author was selected. It's only the publishing house ones. So that's another thing you might have to look out for is mm. reviews is specifically for more independently established. There were some smaller house in the sci-fi category in itself. The second and third were from smaller presses, mm. uh, which I thought was really cool because the indie book got gold and not to 
like I'm sure there's books were amazing and fantastic. I'm just happy to be considered. But it is interesting on some of these other uh, competitions that I was looking at. It's just publishing house, publishing house, publishing house, publishing house, mm. publishing house. No indie, but reader reviews they had indies, and I thought that was really cool. I'm so indies. I love that company. Yeah. <laughs> so if a let's say a, a publishing house wanted to submit one of their books, do they pay the same amount of money to have their book, but they have the income and the, yeah. So it's all, yeah. So but, yeah, it's part of the whole um, benefit of being a part of a publishing house and having representation. There is a lot of benefits to that. I don't deny that for sure. So is it a benefit to these, these kind of um, competitions, these kind of companies that review the, or, don't always read the books, but are they trying to be gain favor with the publishers for some reason? Is that well, there's no way it... their motivation? Yeah. There's just no way. Um, I'm just speaking my observations, and seriously, this thing, this uh, industry, is so fluid. These facts that I say today, or what I perceive to be facts, might actually be different another day. This is just my experience that I'm talking about, and I noticed on some of those sites that there was some dubious language in their their contest rules. And I was just like, okay, I'm not going to be submitting there. But uh, there are a good number of really reputable independent uh, publishing house and independent author options out there and reader reviews, just one among many. And you just kind of have to sift through the rest to see which ones you want to invest your money and time into. So as, as someone who I try to read a lot of indie books, just because I enjoy them, I enjoy them a lot. And people often ask me, what can I do to help indie authors or indie books so what can we do (laughs) so what can what can we as readers do to to help support authors like you and indie and independent authors what are what are things that we can that really that really help you out well i think the the main thing is if if you're spending time on an independent author's book to actually read it you're already doing them a tremendous service in my opinion because reading takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of dedication from that individual person to allocate time in their busy schedule to to pay attention to something you created. Um, and just because I've created a book doesn't mean I've guaranteed any time in people's lives. That's something they're choosing to do. So um, I'm forever grateful for those people who initially put to my book and I didn't know them all the way across the world in France. And you're just like, what? Um, <laughs> so it's really cool just picking up indie books and giving them a chance. And I'm not saying all of them have gone through the same sort of rigorous editing process. It is a very wide array of published books every single day. And some are going to be to your taste and some of them are not. But just giving an, occasionally an indie person a shot, that is an amazing service. If you want to do, if you like it, write a review. If you don't like it, you can also do that. <laughs> it's your choice. It's all in the, the power of the reader and, uh, like I said, picking up the book and reading it is already a huge service. So how, how do you deal with negative negative responses or negative reaction? I'm, I'm sure because anything that goes out on the Internet, I'm sure there's good and there's bad, no matter what, no matter what it is. But how do you process that? What, what are things that, you, that you've done to try and, and not let it be overwhelming, I guess? Well, I think it helps that I set my expectations really, really low. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm doing this all by myself. I'm bound to get someone to just despise it because, I mean, every not everyone likes the same movie. Every, ten people go, go see the same movie and they'd all have something different to say about it. So 
there's no way if we play this statistics game that I'm going to win everyone's favor. That's just not how this game works. But if I'm on average making people laugh or smile or enjoy the ride in some capacity, then I consider that a success. And even if the average falls out of favor at any point in time for future or present novels that I write, that is what I consider an opportunity for growth. I think the best experience I ever had was in a creative writing class that showed me precisely what it means to be a reader versus a writer. Because in that class, we had to write short stories or poems and then distribute that work to the entire class. This was in college. And then you read the, the story to the entire class while they read along, you read aloud. And then you sat down and you closed your mouth and you listened and they discussed it in front of you. They dissected it. They're like, I was confused about this part. Oh, I didn't like this part at all. And they just, they tore it to shreds in front of you. And you could see exactly where you were weak and where you were strong. And you realize that this is an opportunity. What they're saying to you right now is exactly what they saw. And that's important to take into account as a writer because every vantage is different. And if the average of that vantage is saying, hey, we were this or we were that, it's important to pay attention to that. Wow, that must be nerve wracking, right? To have awesome. someone shred it. <laughs> but it's an important learning lesson because now if someone tears it to shreds, I'm gonna be like, okay, which parts did they not like? I'm like, okay, I'm ready to write notes. Okay, where are we at? Um, I take it as a learning opportunity. If somebody doesn't like it, it's cool to hear why. So speaking of feedback, how has feedback, whether it's been positive or negative, how has that changed? Has that changed your process writing the the next book? Has that what has that done for your just for your process? I I am blessed to say that the feedback I've gotten so far has been overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. Uh, I don't consider that trivial at all. That's it's blown me away. I ex I expected far less. Like I said, I've had super low expectations here, and then people have been super kind with their words and reaching out and telling me not like I had some people out of the blue say, uh, like, don't give up, like fellow indie authors straight up messaging me, uh, saying, it's good. You have a talent. Keep trying. Don't let, don't let anything get you down. I want to see what you can do. Please keep writing. And wow. that's awesome. So the main thing I take into account is whenever I hear people's responses to escape reality and I hear what they enjoyed, what they didn't enjoy. I obviously file that away in my mind, but I do have an idea of where the book is going to go. And so it's important to know whose characters, or which of the characters are probably people's favorites and where people are hoping the story to go will go. But I don't think that I'm going to let um, anything majorly impact the trajectory, it's kind of like you, you hear a lot of authors when they're doing big series, they'll say, oh, I already know the ending. And not to say this is going to be an enormous series or anything like that, but I do already have an idea of where it's going to go. And so the journey of writing is a very fluid process for me. When I sit down, I might have my milestones planned, but it's a very um, organic writing experience from each milestone to the next. So if I end up getting feedback and that deviates where I'm going exactly, it's not going to be by a whole lot. I don't even know if it would be perceptible to me. Hmm. But I wow. do take into account uh, people's opinions and I do like to grow in that respect. So it's, uh, it's a very fluid and organic way of writing, but it's my approach.
So do you know how many books the series will be? Do you have kind of a rough idea? Um, I do, but I'm not going to say. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> I thought I'd try. <laughs> Just thought I'd take a shot. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you respect that. Yeah. So when, when, you, when you plot a story, whether it's this story or another story, do you start with the characters or the plot? Or kind of where do you where do you start developing your ideas? I've always found with my writing, there's something, a kernel of something that fascinates me. Um, I used to draw. I actually painted this. It's a work in progress. But wow, I that's really nice. take a small thing that I want to do. Like this one, I started with the mountains here. And I liked some of the impressionistic aspects of certain paintings. So I was just playing around and doing that. Something very similar occurs when I write. There's mm. a tiny kernel of... Um, concept or an emotion or an I, a character that I want to play with um, intellectually and go through the different, uh, almost like a simulation, go through the different possibilities and see where it leads me. And for escape reality, it was during a very tense time in my life. I was graduating. I was finding a job. I needed to find a job to help support my family. And so it was my escaping of my own reality <laughs> that kind of allowed me to create Escape Prison Planet book. And it started off as just that, not a big, huge world, just a girl being dropped on a planet filled with monsters and let's go. And so that was the kernel that of sort of idea that led me on the path to create it. And it expanded as I went. Hmm. Um, let's have a question here. <laughs> Hopefully I've been answering your questions well. Like I said, first interview, loot. Yeah, definitely. It's been, yeah, no, I, I I love the I love hearing your experiences and your thought process. It, it's really interesting to me, and a lot of other people too, obviously. But yeah. um, when is it? Do you have any plans to write other genres, or are you just you you enjoy science fiction and you want to stick with that, or have you thought about that? Yes, and I plan on writing both science fiction and fantasy predominantly. I like to view other elements like mystery and thriller aspects into my novel. If you've read it, which you have, um, <laughs> there, are, there are scenes that are kind of horror filled and there are scenes that are a little bit more dramatic. So I do like to sort of weave into the loom as it were different thematic elements. However, the main two would probably be science fiction and fantasy for now. Speaking of the, and I won't give anything away now, we'll save the details later for the spoiler section, but there are a couple parts that you really caught me by surprise. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> I didn't, and I, I didn't expect that to happen. There was a few, a few moments that were like, wow, that these people, they mean business. <laughs> so it was good. I uh, didn't expect that to happen. Um, so for your, for science fiction, I had a question from Beth Ann over on, on YouTube. Kind of related, kind of more related to what we're, we're talking about. And one of her questions were, are there any sci-fi writers that that you feel really shaped your work and world building? Uh, interestingly enough, I would say some of the classics like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is, is a combination of science fiction and fantasy in a world where there's a great deal of heavy hitting elements or Brave New World. These things where you have some time to develop a view upon things or in Shelley's uh, world, which was rather dark in both reality and in fiction, it, you have both science and fantasy brought together to make science fiction. And I'd say those were the initial stories that I read in my youth 
kind of began the churning of cogs in my head about what possibilities there really were. Wow. Um, so what, are there any science fiction movies that really, um, oh, are wow. you a big movie buff? <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, when I was young, I was a Stargate SG-1 fanatic. I love Star Stargate SG-1. And when I met my husband, we watched all of the first gen uh, Star Trek, so or bit Trek fans as well. Uh, when I was really, really young, I also watched the initial Star Wars trilogy and was convinced as a little girl that I looked exactly like Leia when I looked nothing like her. But in my head, I was just like, yeah, I'm exactly like her. I was so tiny. But <laughs> I love science fiction as a genre. And so if there's something that comes up that's new in science fiction, oh, I'm watching it for sure. Yeah. And I mentioned in the review, but I was really, I was blown away by the amount of world building that you did in this book. It really, and I, like I said, I, I kind of imagined a big, huge wall with strings and pictures and, and you know, how they have, you know, like, the, like yeah, that's kind of what I imagine you having because there's so much in this book. There's so much to it. And it's not, it wasn't, um, it wasn't like you backed a dump truck up and dumped everything on, on the reader. It was, it rolled out in a, in a good pace that you kind of take it in. So how did you plan all of that? Was that, did you, did you have a wall that you have pictures and strings on? So, uh, like I said, there, there was that initial point where it was just kind of Edith on a planet. And I had a few of the initial characters that were in that same beginning scene. And so it really tumbled forth from there. I began thinking about, okay, what are the elements of a story? Where are the uh, plot lines that are antagonistic? Where are the ones that drum up hope? Where are we going with this novel as a whole? And luckily enough, that first chapter when I was just fluidly writing something out of the blue, it was it's sort of a test case. I was actually writing one chapter out of Escape Reality and one out of a, a fantasy novel that I'll probably publish in the future. And I, they were both test cases to see something that I had never dreamt up before. And like, hey, let's just write a random first chapter of two possible books. And that's how that started. And it wasn't until I chose I chose to write Escape Reality, and I began to ponder where the story was going to go, that I started having the ideas about later scenes. And those became those milestones I was talking about that connect between the early scenes that were really fleshed out in my mind versus the latter scenes of the book that I wanted to come to pass. And so you have to forge the path in between those. And in doing so, you do create an outline of what character lines need to converge in order to make that into a reality. And it is quite a, a detailed process for sure. I don't think I had any strings on a wall. Okay. <laughs> but I did create several outlines as I went and I would edit those outlines. If I changed something that made it to where that was no longer something I was going to do, I would modify it and I wouldn't let it hold me back if I've changed the ending or I changed something else about it, okay, let's just change the outline and we'll keep going. Um, then after the first draft, I made sure I went through everything to make sure there weren't any like plot device issues or holes in the book. So. And, and another, the second part of Beth Ann's question was, um, how long did it take you to develop all of those ideas from the book, all the different, um, parts of the world, all the different races and and the different conflicts and how long did that take just to, to kind of flesh all that out? Is that 
just, or did it kind of go with your outline and, and go with the process with your story? Those are, in, interestingly enough, those were the easiest parts hmm. because you can come up with an idea that's big and uh, amorphous, it's generalized, but getting the specific footprints to lead you to that point is far more labor intensive. Hmm. So in creating Edith or Blade's character and getting them to eventually converge, any of these sorts of things in the in the in the novel that allow people to build the story in their mind, I had the high level unlocked pretty early on once I started generating all the characters possible. But it was the steps in between that took a great deal of time and effort. Does that answer her question? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I do have another question from Joe over at Average Joe's Library. He also oh, did. He also did a really great review that I should have watched before I had watched the reading. But his question, yeah, he's he did, he's great. He has a great channel. For sure. um, he's also another, he reads a lot of indie books. And he's a big advocate for uh, Kindle Unlimited as well. Um, so his his question was, he said, I, he said, I'm interested in how you came up with the different alien races and how they would mix. There's a lot of descriptions on how they blend and the attributes, the attributes which were which is interesting, I can go. And this kind of leads back, I think, to her question too, and I didn't answer all of the alien race concepts. So um, the initial chapter does, or the initial section does introduce the different alien species available specifically to the grafting projects. And if you have not read the book, the grafting projects are essentially much like a, a skin graft for burn victims, where you're grafting one part of, uh, usually another part of your body's skin onto a part where you've been injured, except we have the concept now in biology of grafting into the genome. And in this futuristic world, we're grafting for since specifically, you have people who are able to intake both organic and inorganic mediums directly into their genome. Whereas the average population for gestational purposes, they've been able to graft different alien species DNA together in order to create a more diverse alien environment for the story to unfold within. So we're dealing with a genetic grafting project and I never specify whether or not these alien species have the ability to procreate independently of the grafting project, just that these societies have moved together and all inclu were included in this project. Yeah. That was another part that I was really impressed with is the different alien races and how, how detailed they were and how and <laughs> the, and, um, you mentioned that you, you would, you would, you would tell someone or you would explain someone who's not familiar with the book, you would explain that it's a science fiction thriller. Yeah. So as you're writing a thriller like this, how do you know when you're giving the reader too much and how do you know when you're not giving them enough? How do you, is there, is there, how do you determine that, that, They'll, they'll follow, but they, they won't know too much. So how do you, how do you kind of stretch that out and leave things in, in the air? Uh, I have an amazing beta reader as my husband. <laughs> and so anytime I write something, I get direct complaints about whether or not it's like, I want to know what's happening next, Kayla. What are you doing? <laughs> like, and he does not hold back. So if I'm being too elusive, he's like, add more details, please. Oh, I was wondering about this. So I get an immediate uh, list of opinions, some of which I agree with, some of which I then don't. <laughs> and <laughs> we go from there. But he's what I do is I don't show him anything or tell him anything about the story 
we learned early on it was better to kind of let him experience as a normal reader would. And so I'll write a little bit, then I'll hand it to him, kind of like I did with that class. And then he'll bear it before my eyes or give it praises, which more often than not, he was really happy with it. And he was excited to see when the next uh, section was going to be given to him. So mm -hmm. he already read what I've written for the second book. And he's like, give me more, give me more. Cool. <laughs> so that's how I am able to kind of gauge where it is in my mind versus where the reader is at. And I find home as I go along. Then with the beta readers, I give it to them and they'll tell me, well, I was kind of confused at this point, or I really wanted to know this because they've read from front to back. And if they still have questions, I have a problem. Hmm. So that's how I was able to whittle down and make sure that I was giving enough information to keep their curiosity going and not frustrate them too much with being elusive. Interesting. So other than your husband, which I'm sure is a great resource for you as a beta reader, how do you choose your other beta readers? How do you, how do you select, because you can, you can choose from, you know, tons of different people. So how do you, how do you choose who those readers are that, you know, will give you the feedback that you're looking for? So I try to go, I chose specifically, um, somebody who worked and read predominantly nonfiction because I figured they'd take a very clinical view upon the book and then uh, somebody who had an engineering background um, who would be able to really break apart any scenes where it's like, wait, uh, scientifically speaking, that's, that's, that's nonsense. So they could tell me if I messed up the science at all. And then I had someone who doesn't read science fiction and is not tech savvy read it to see whether or not it was still a cohesive story for them. Because they may not know what a network is or really be acquainted with the concepts of tech or engineering in mm -hmm. even a large sense. So if they're able to still understand the book, then I'm doing okay. So I tried to cover my bases in that way. Interesting. It is tough. Um, people who aren't very tech savvy to, to have to kind of latch onto this kind of material, I would guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's... But they were able to do so, which was a huge win to me. Definitely. Um, what do you, what do you enjoy most about science fiction as a, as a genre? Ah, the endless possibilities. There's just no limit. We often kind of put ourselves in these, um, almost boundaries of where current tech is. But if we look at past science fiction, oftentimes we see how science itself has grown over time because it's a mirror of the current day and age scientific discovery, the march toward the beyond. And that is why I like science fiction is because it's ahead of the curve on science. It's playing with the possibilities that we're already trying to dream up as a culture. And I like that endless possibility mindset. Wow. It's funny you mentioned that we recently read Neuromancer. Um, and on my TBR. <laughs> I yeah, it, was, it was, it was, I, and I won't spoil anything, but it was, I was really impressed with all the different terms and, and the, the way that it describes things and it was i was really surprised that it was written when it was because there's, there's a lot of of corp you know corp names that are every day we use every day now that were in that book and i was really surprised it was pretty impressive how much how about how much of an impact it's had on the genre and on just popular culture so it was a little over my head i have to have to admit because i'm 
I think I mentioned in the review, I'm, I'm still getting used to science fiction. I'm just have to kind of just relax and go with, go for the ride. And I, I just, I couldn't, I didn't wrap my head around that one. That's, I, I think most people are in the same boat when it comes to science fiction versus fantasy. Because fantasy oftentimes is in a realm that we're somewhat acquainted with from other mediums. Yeah. Science fiction, like you're creating a whole new world. Now you do occasionally get some fantasy authors that are really edgy and doing some awesome stuff that are creating stuff out of the normal fantasy space. And I love when I run across stuff like that. But right now, I'm about to do a deep dive in a public domain book by Jules Verne, and it's very much in the same way you were just saying, where he was using concepts and technologies, uh, he was projecting in the future, it was sort of like in the year 2889, and essentially he's projecting what he thinks will be around at that point in time. It's a really short little story, like 40 pages, and it is so neat what someone in 1889 could have thought possible for a thousand years in the future. And I find that juxtaposition of, of possibility versus present very fascinating. Yeah. Wow. I have to read that. That's, that's, uh, I'd be curious to see what, what that is, what's in that one. <laughs> um, so how do you, how do you make deaths? And I won't give any spoilers, <laughs> but just in general, uh, how do you make deaths impactful? You have to care about every character even the characters that are not nice. Um, which is why <laughs> um, when you're when you're writing every scene, well, I try to write from third person limited, which means I'm not just writing what's happening, I'm writing the way they see the scene. So you'll notice there's a specific character that might make observations about another character that's not very friendly. And you're just like, <laughs> like, well, this isn't a nice person. And it's certainly not my perspective. And I'm trying to be as vague as possible, I'm sorry. We're not to the spoiler section. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. Um, but you try to make sure that even if it's a villain or a heroine, that you treat it with the same level of respect that it is a life. That they had a beginning as a child, like everyone else did. And something, a chain of things happened that led them to this point in time. And that's kind of the modus operandi of the book itself for Edith, because you have, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say, essentially, um, as she's a synth, a child soldier who made it to adulthood. And the trauma of that life is at, on display in the book and sure. has a great deal to do with the themes at play. So no matter the character, no matter how short or long lived said character is, I genuinely spent time and effort to care about where I thought they came from, where they hoped to go, even if that was cut short. Hmm. So I, my next question was going to be, how do you make unlikable characters likable? And I, I would guess it's kind of related, right? <laughs> yeah, the same, yeah. I do with some moral ambiguity, and I know that um, people don't always like that. Uh, I take a very relativistic approach, approach in this because we oftentimes see in war films or novels a very one-sided perspective to conflicts. Hmm. In this novel, I do not do that you're going to be jumping into the driver's seat of every single character, no matter if they're the goodies or the baddies, or if you can even discern what is good and bad. You're going, <laughs> you're going to see what drives them and what makes them uh, a grafter or in, in this world, human. Um, so it's really creating a level of empathy for everyone and not telling you who the good and bad are so that the reader themselves can determine 
from what they read, who they believe is good or bad, and how they feel about deaths or trials. Hmm. Interesting. Um, for and we, we already touched on it a little bit, but had a question here about inspiration from other forms of entertainment. I think we've already yeah. Do you do you listen to music or anything oh, yeah. when you're writing? Oh, really? <laughs> um, I like to write with music 100%. There are some scenes, and my husband can attest to this, that I'll literally press replay on the same song for the entire time I'm writing that scene because it has the cadence in my mind for that scene. There's a few of the final scenes in the book where I just kept pressing replay on the song, the very dramatic song that I was replaying over and over again. And he was so very tolerant um, <laughs> because that was the moment that held sort of the essence of how it felt for those characters. And so it helped me as an author, at least, to feel what I wanted them to feel or what I hoped to convey in that moment. So I do listen to a ton of different types of music Whatever would match the scene, that's what I choose. Did he buy headphones for you after that? Or... <laughs> no, he didn't mind. <laughs> Very tolerant. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, if, a, if a new writer or, or an aspiring writer came to you and said, Kayla, I want to write this book. I want to, I want to get into this. Uh, what, what, do you, what would you tell them if they asked you for advice? Well, I've had actually a few message me. Uh, privately and ask what I did because they were already starting to look up different services and I would again caution them because there's a lot of services out there that'll say a package deal here for only blah 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 dollars and I did not pay Amazon to publish my book not a single cent they make profits on every single transfer of data for ebook and profits on every hard copy after the the page and uh, covering all of the hardware is subtracted from the cost of the book, which the bulk of the price for the, the paperback actually is just the hardware because it's an on-demand print copy. Um, and that allows me to always have print copies available to readers, but it also means that every single purchase is deducting that amount from the price tag that you're doing, which means I can't really reduce the price very much without biting into the actual, uh, in fact, they won't let you reduce it down past a certain amount because they have to cover the material costs. So for future or present indie authors, I would just recommend look at all your options. With Amazon, you have some exclusive and non-exclusive deals. I chose an exclusive deal because it was convenient for me and I really liked some of the options they had available, but research, find out what's good for you. Do you want to be available in Barnes and Nobles? Is it important to you for that? Then you probably are not going to want to do an exclusive deal. Right now, I'm in the process of getting through ACX, an audible copy of my book with two amazing actors that are going to do the male and female voices in concert, like a duet. I'm super excited about that. I've already got some of the test samples of the book back from them, and they're just about to ramp up production on it. So that's the exciting thing that's happening right now. Wow. But you have to be willing to do the research to find out what works best for you. And if you ever have questions as a writer, ask me. <laughs> so if you if you send an, ex an exclusive deal with amazon does that mean that you can't sell your book i noticed you have you sell your book on your website does that no, mean you can't oh it, uh, i thought it has i thought you had a, a 
that just reroutes you to Amazon, right? Uh, yeah, I have light links that just go straight to Amazon. So if, you, so if you do have an, an exclusive with Amazon, you can't distribute the book any, or you can't sell the book any other way, or how does that work? I can, because you can buy it at uh, the cost of the production at an author rate, and then have it be distributed to stores that way, but you have to do all of the groundwork that way. Now, um, they get, a, I believe, and I'm, don't quote me on this, do your research. It's been a while since I looked at this, so I might be a little bit wrong, but uh, I believe you can do that for paperback, so long as it doesn't, uh, a lot of companies are rather restrictive if you're just doing Amazon or if it's on-demand publishing. They may not like that type of style for books. They may be a little bit uh, specific on formatting. Um, ebook is where you, you can't publish it anywhere else, ebook wise. Oh, okay. I, if I published my book as an ebook on any other surf, uh, service that would, uh, violate the terms of service. Mm. Yeah. Huh. Which I'm fine with because you get more of the proceeds and as an indie author, that's what really allows you to keep going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, um, what is, what is your favorite underappreciated novel? Oh, wow. Oh, let me think about this for a second. It's a good question. That's a really good question. I, <laughs> There's I got you. <laughs> you did. You did. This is a good question. I like it. I'm probably going to go with a, uh, an easy answer because it's the, one of the more recent books that I read. And I did a video on for an indie author called Stancy Smith. And I think that if you're looking for a lighthearted, well, not so much lighthearted, it's pretty, can be gruesome at times, but just a fast read with thrilling adventure-esque elements. He was, I was surprised at how many books he had available on Amazon and on Goodreads that are really well rated, but I never see anyone talk about him. And um, it's not like hugely profound, his content or anything. It's just kind of like, hey, a romp using a, uh, a device that sends you to alternate dimensions. And you're like, okay, we're just along for the adventure. Um, and But he does so much work on the adding prehistoric elements, doing a lot of uh, background research. He has a blog, a nature blog, has all sorts of flora and fauna on it. And so I think that he's well underappreciated for the amount of of content he has generated in the indie space. Hmm. I noticed you. I noticed you did a video on that one. Yeah. It's been on my list. Yeah. <laughs> Along it's with a bunch of other books. Yeah. yeah. Um, I noticed that, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, but you did the artwork, right? It, on the inside and the outside, because yeah. there's a few internally speaking as well as there. Yeah. And, 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 the the and yeah, I did all of that. Wow. I see to doodle, and uh, that's actually my hand <laughs> in the form of like, oh, I the pictures of my hand, and then <laughs> I sketched it. Um, and then I printed a bunch of medical diagrams of skeletons and imagined how they would look in the position I had the picture of my hand, and then looked up uh, sinew and blood vessels, and then modeled that as well. Then added the tech for Edith. After that, I scanned it in and digitally messed with it a bunch and then simulated blood for the cover. <laughs> and wow. you have it. Yeah, I was, I was impressed. Cause so you, you wrote the book and you did the artwork for it. Yeah. Wow. 
and you and you're an engineer on your when you're not doing that i i do have a tendency to load up my schedule yeah so i was like <laughs> uh, was was the art was the artwork that's inside the book was it inspired by the story or was that artwork that you've done before no it was inspired by the story um the very first art piece that you see is a watercolor i did of edith and Tekrin at the very beginning and sort of that space and i was just playing around with that some of the later ones we're uh, actually seeing the background of the what we're looking at on this stream is from section two. That's another watercolor um, that I did for like a space scene. And then I overlaid the silhouette for Blade. And I did that for the rest of them as well, including the tech group, silhouettes, stevies, uh, various, his jacket, his goggles, all sorts of fun stuff. So I, every single... I went through a bunch of possibilities for each section image. And originally I was way too over ambitious and I was gonna do a picture per chapter. And eventually I realized, oh, wow. you're trying to hurt yourself, let's stop doing that. And <laughs> let's rein it back in. And so I did a picture per section instead, so there were six sections. And so that's how I was able to whittle down the, um, the pictures of the book. Originally it was gonna be a lot more. I'm glad I didn't do that, though. that would have been ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a lot. Of, yeah, that would have been a lot of artwork. Yeah, a lot of time. Yeah. So. yeah, a lot of time. But no, it, I was really. I mean, not only the book, but the the artwork and the cover art. I mean, I'm sure that's a whole another whole another process for someone who, who who doesn't do art. You know, who doesn't have the capability or the time or whatever to do. Everyone has cover art. It just takes practice. It's like engineering. You just have to have your full set, for sure. <laughs> People don't yeah. think you can. But they're like, oh, I can't draw a circle. I'm like, do you have a cup? Draw around it. Then you have a circle. <laughs> Got to know your tools. <laughs> a cup and a pencil is all you need. <laughs> yeah, for a circle. <laughs> so when you when you were going through your editing process, uh, and you were you were getting getting the book edited and proofread and everything, how much did you cut out of the book, just from from your own process? Um, I had done most of the big cuts before it ever made it to the editor, because I did several edits beforehand. Mm -hmm. um, and so my husband was reading the really, really rough uh, alpha version. And then <laughs> he, uh, after getting that feedback and kind of thinking through it myself, I went through it a few more times. And then I didn't, the main issue wasn't cutting, it was adding mm -hmm. to make sure things were, weren't confusing so that I could sew everything together. Kind of like what you were talking about earlier making sure all of these things connected correctly mm -hmm. strings on the wall yeah. um, <laughs> very much so going through each edit round and making sure there was nothing obfuscated by it just not being there hmm. insertions were the main thing that my editor came back with saying add a little bit more here maybe change how you word that there aside from grammar and other stuff that he found how many how many books have you started and, and just not finished? <laughs> well, I don't. Uh, yeah, I like the way you worded that. I definitely plan on finishing them. And I love that I have officially finished one. So it just shows that I can do it. Um, I'm focusing on this series for now, but I have started at least 30. Um, wow. <laughs> at various stages. I have one that's a fantasy book. No, that that's sort of a sci-fi fantasy that's got around I think 50k words on it. There's a few more in the 20k range, and so 
a spattering of various novels, but I have a few that I'm focusing on. I don't dilute my focus because obviously I have a lot of projects going simultaneously. So I choose the ones I want to work on. And my main one is the next book in this series. And then if I ever feel drag, draggy for um, this content, I'll just jump over and write a few chapters in the other and then jump back so that I don't sort of uh, expend all of my energy and feel like, oh no, I can't write anything. I just switched focus for a little while and <laughs> write something else, then I come back. That way the train keeps going, if that wow. makes sense. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of projects. So how do you find the time to do all this and, and to your personal <laughs> life and work and, and family life? And So how do you how do you balance it? Is there something that you do or like a motto you have that helps you keep um, everything in, in balance? That's the big task in itself is finding the time and making sure that you take care of yourself and you don't overload your schedule. I mean, um, work life plus this in itself is quite, um, a lot to handle. And then on top of that, now I'm doing a little bit of YouTube here and there and <laughs> adding all these other things, but what's the way I look at it is I don't, these are my hobbies. I, I love what I do both in work and in my own personal time. And I do write in my own personal time. So you have a work-life balance, but both my husband and I are kind of workaholics anyway. So instead of watching a TV show, I'm gonna be painting or I'm gonna be reading a book or I'm going to be writing a book. It's just how you wanna spend your time and making sure that you don't burn yourself out by overloading your schedule with too many things. Oh, I'm impressed. 30, 30 books. Wow. <laughs> Pretty good. Lots of ideas. Though. That's great, though. Yeah, yeah. But I'm only focusing on the next one for now. I'm not diluting that focus. I don't want people who are looking for the next one to be like, oh, gosh, 30 books. We're never going to get the second one. No, that's the next one that's going to be here. I promise. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Um, okay. So are there any therapeutic benefits to modeling a character after someone you know? I've had people ask me, oh, is this character this person? It's never the person. Um, you draw upon different ideas from people, like mm -hmm. an aspect of someone you know, but it's I. It's probably different for every author, but I don't do that. I prefer no. to make a character that seems like their own person. So to me, Edith is a very realistic depiction of who she's meant to be in the story. I'm not drawing upon anyone I see in reality. It would be quite difficult to find someone that could emulate her, what she's gone through, I would say. And oh, yeah. <laughs> so what you do is you kind of cherry pick from our reality concepts that you think really bring to life people. For example, Hollis's character, the idea of a woman, a middle-aged woman who is learned in the field of medicine, uh, well-educated in the field of medicine, what she might be like, and just kind of mind mapping that for a mm. while to see what would Hollis do? Why would Hollis do that? Where is she coming from? What are her motivations? You just start asking yourself kind of whenever, the same way you would do with a, a user interface for a new application. Why would the user click on this tab? Do they want that tab? Or is that something that they would be like, why is this tab here? You start thinking about the utility behind each action that you give the character. And that's where I go from there. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mention that because I, I've helped um, develop software before and that's 
kind of the process is yeah. they'll click on this so we better make sure you know is it, it needed or is it not needed yeah and if, <laughs> if it is then we better make sure it works yeah because someone will click on it if it's there someone will click on it yeah, yeah. <laughs> someone will click on it um for the the rest of the series and the other books that that you have planned do you plan to do the artwork for all of your books is that the plan ah <sighs> that's a big question uh my husband wants me to hire someone just so i have more time uh, <laughs> but I, I am inclined to do it myself because I've limited it to just be the section images. I feel like that's a lovely way to decompress anyway. Um, we'll see how it goes. I don't want to make any commitments here or there, but I'll always um, list whoever does the illustrations. And they're probably going to be me just because I enjoy doing it. And it gives me an opportunity to um, show what I uh, express an aspect of the book that may not be as tangible in written form. However, some of my friends who have read the book are like, you just need to have someone illustrate all of the characters because they really want to see what those characters look like. They're like, give me a good picture of Tekrin. Um, <laughs> that's what they're all asking. So I might hire someone to illustrate the full cast just for fun um, and then post that on my website or, or on social media or something like that. Just why not? But for now, I plan on doing all the illustrations. Uh, is is that hesitancy because you feel so attached to these characters in this world? Is that part of it? I, I, I like I said, I'm a little bit of a workaholic, and I enjoy doing all. It's a challenge, like thinking about how you're going to draw the hand, planning everything out. I already have the next cover planned. I know I'm doing that, and actually, I have all the covers. Um, oh, <laughs> I want to ask. I want to ask. <laughs> I want to, but I want to ask. I know. But it's, it's fun for me. And so it's kind of like giving away something that you know you would get more time from that if you handed it over, but you enjoy doing it. So mm -hmm. you're loath to give up that enjoyment by handing it to someone else. Makes sense. Makes but I'm sense. eventually give up yeah. that control. <laughs> Is that weird to give that up to someone? I, I mean, I haven't done it yet, so I don't yeah. know, but I'm sure it will be. <laughs> Uh, so you're, uh, I was going to ask you about research, but I think you've, you did quite, I mean, from your previous education and experience, you did, that was a lot of research that went into the book because of all the details and the science that was in it. And of course you had your, um, some of the beta readers give you feedback on that too. Yeah. Which was very helpful because yeah. I was not a hundred percent perfect on that. So they were very instrumental. <laughs> yeah. But that's, it's really cool. Uh, let's see. It is still a, a fictional world, so it's not a hundred percent like <laughs> what is possible in today's era. So I would add that as a caveat. Like I try to present the science as realistically as possible. <laughs> you mean you mean Edith, Edith does that doesn't really happen? That's not a thing. Yeah. It's sense not a thing. Real? Oh my gosh! Uh, you had me thinking this was real this whole time. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I think. Well. Um, I think that's all the questions I had. So be all the non-spoilery questions I had. Oh. Yeah. Um, just okay. making sure I didn't miss anything. Long-winded in my answers. No, that's great. That's <laughs> I, this is what yeah, I love. I love hearing uh, your ideas and your your process. It's so fascinating to me because I I don't have uh, the desire, I guess you can say, to. But I I just I love hearing. It. And everyone has a different story. That's what's so 
interesting to me is everyone has their own experiences and their their own process and that's just really fascinates me yeah so i think we can go into spoilers so i'll be sure and, and put a, a section here on the bottom on the on the on the video i'll be sure and, and mark this as the spoiler section <laughs> so if you haven't read the book um skip to the end um the next chapter so uh we'll start with the question i had from from joe from joe's average library excellent um and I was sure to save this one because it was a spoilery question. <laughs> um, his question was, was this almost meant to be like an Ocean's Eleven type crew assemble to lead into the next book? No, that never entered my mind at all. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of a group coming together in that vague connection to Ocean's Eleven, perhaps, but that wasn't the, the essence Building a crew, sure. That was something that I was considering throughout the novel is making sure I have the right characters enter at the right time to build the crew that I want at the end of the book. Certainly. So if he's mm -hmm. meaning it in that respect, sure. But that wasn't the way I thought of it. I thought of it more like how they would be useful in the, the ship itself, in the story, how it's going to unfold in later books. That's where I was coming from. So, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in assembling that crew were there certain personalities or certain traits that you wanted on that team that you were sure to include so did, did that change any of the characters along the way to to try and fit all the different pieces you wanted to to make mm -hmm. that type of crew there were characters that i started out with in the book and um there were Obviously, some characters that I didn't include in the final draft that I was contemplating, but I never actually put pen to paper and wrote those out because I didn't find them to be necessary for what was going to happen later on. Oftentimes when we read books, or at least for me, sometimes I'll read a book and I'll be like, you could have literally just scooted that character out of the book and it wouldn't have changed a thing. And so I thought that was essentially where I needed to focus is what do each of these people contribute in the long run? And how are their personalities going to shape the story? And I feel like for each character in the group, they all hold a very specific purpose right. for the cohesion of that group. You or, have a, a power battle between Emmanuel and Mrs. Felly Wolf. You have these different uh, personality traits being expressed in how they view the world. And uh, I liked the way they all came together, for sure. Obviously, I wouldn't have written it if I didn't like it. <laughs> I hope you did. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you about Edith and her her experiences and, and that the uh, her story was really impactful from what she went through to become, a, you know, what the augmentation and everything. I mean, that um, it got to me and, it, and I don't want to say it got to me like I lost sleep over it, but it was it was really well done and it was really impactful because it was um, really feel for her when when all that happens and it didn't seem in this in this world in this context it didn't seem that um it seemed to fit I mean, and you can imagine that kind of thing happening if this technology existed Challenge. you can see yeah that kind of thing yeah. happening so was that tough for you to write i mean was that, oh, yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> i mean the, the scene i feel like that really sets the stage on how callous people can be when the perspectives are different 
on what, oh, we're doing something that's technically good in this specific aspect, like it's scientific progress, but it's at a cost. A lot of things are at a cost. And a lot of this book, a lot of her history is kind of a bill that's slowly being built and now they're paying. Um, yeah. <laughs> because the reason I say she's very much so like a child soldier who made it to adulthood is the sad situation is children in the past have had to deal with some of these atrocious things happening and being mechanizations of war. And she brought in at such a young and malleable age, being the perfect little soldier and having that disillusionment that she had that, and the rage associated that she doesn't quite know what to do with. Um, it's, it was very hard to write her because she doesn't even know what she thinks about it. And so she's trying to deal with those emotions as she's going along. And the scene that was probably, there were a few scenes that were hard to write uh, in the sense that I was choked up when I was writing them and seeing her as a little girl in that medical chamber, that was a hard one to write. And I know not everyone's going to read it in the same way, but for me, it's like, I'm envisioning all these things. I'm thinking about the straps and how ominous yeah. this feel for a six-year-old girl. And I'm yeah. just like, that's just like, oh, this, I'm, you feel evil writing it. <laughs> You're like, this is evil. Um, but it's so necessary for her character development. And it sets the stage of callousness and lets you know that you can have people like Dr. Spites that are compassionate and, on the one hand, but still calloused. Yeah. to what they're actually doing and playing with those uh, du dual realities are, is fascinating as a writer. The latter scene with the capsule at the very end, mm -hmm. that was the life raft. Yeah. That, was, that was another scene that was just like, <laughs> I'm writing, I'm like, trying Because <laughs> to me, that was very impactful, repeating the same song over and over again to make sure I have the same melancholy while I'm writing. Yeah. Yeah. And I did, I did like how we, we were figuring things out as, you know, as throughout the book, I liked that we were getting bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. um, and something that, um, that Joe had mentioned in his book and, and that or in his book, in his, um, as I pick up the book, in his review about um, some of the things, I guess he, he didn't quite pick up until the end, mm -hmm. but I, I, I guess I, I was following um, the um, the different storylines. I wasn't too confused with that. So I was wondering, awesome. that's why, yeah, that's how earlier we were, I was wanted to ask you how you give the reader enough, but not too much and keep them guessing. Um, it, it has to do with where the characters need to end. So I am talking about, I am thinking about it as a, as a writer and where they need to go. So obviously that goes into play, but when it comes to every scene, you'll notice that there's not a lot of people waxing poetically about their diabolical plans or anything like yeah. that. I'm always in the theater like, just end it. I mean, cause if you were there, you're just like, we gotta get this done. Yeah. So these are very, she is a very efficient machine and how she was made and how she was instructed to become. And so I always tried to make sure the characters acted in what a way that I thought were realistic for their personalities. So I would reveal as much as what would seem reasonable for that character to, re to reveal anymore. And I feel like it would bring the reader out of the story. And so it is a battle between 
how much do I stay here? How much do I not stay here? Where are we going? And beta readers help tremendously with getting that finally clear. Yeah, there was a, a section I had tabbed that I really, really enjoyed. It's on page 738. And it's it's a long section, but um, it starts with, um, uh, don't look at those pieces of shattered glass and think that I am like you because I'm not. I will destroy whatever tries to do the same to me. And unlike you, I will not shatter them by accident. I was like, wow, that's really, that's. I loved that line. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I've, I had the little. Little tab, yeah. I was trying to find it. I had so much fun with that line for sure. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, that's that's really cool. I mean, it got to me. That's why obviously I had it tabbed, but I'm glad. Yeah, I was like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> that's really awesome. Ah, that makes me very happy. I'm, I'm yeah. doing a little jig in my head right now. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> There's a, a couple of sections. Um, the memory dumps, especially, <laughs> I liked that because they. For me, like I mentioned, that it's it's hard for me sometimes to keep up. So the memory dumps um, really helped me kind of, oh, okay. And you, you start to really, you get bigger pieces to yeah. help you along. It starts, you learn as she learns and figures yeah. out. And so it kind of, um, it informs you why she's acting the way she is at mm -hmm. that given time. And so I, I enjoyed writing the memory dumps. For, on the one hand, it lets you know who she is because at face value, she can seem quite monstrous. And so if you don't have some of those background data points to draw from, how likable is she as a character? Yeah. And that goes back to playing with who is good and who is bad. Does intention matter? Because we have people like Jessup in the book where they are they do not have good intentions. And you're just like, and you compare that with Edith, who, who's rather amiable, but she does pretty atrocious things. So you're comparing. <laughs> <laughs> comparing someone who's not necessarily trying to do harm but is quite harmful and then someone who technically saves or tries to save a kid but isn't a very nice person and it allows you to think okay where does intent and action come into play and where how do you as a reader or even as a writer we feel about it that was it's fun funny. to play with it's funny you mention that because of all the things that edith did i still i still liked her <laughs> And I was wondering if there was something wrong with me because no. I still really liked her, even though even after we learned uh, her whole story. But I, I think the connection to her character when she was young and the things that she went through really cemented. I, mean, I was a, I was rooting for her after you start to learn all those terrible things that happened to her. Yeah. Even even when you learn later with the things that she did, I still was like, oh, she, you know, give her a break. <laughs> give her a break. Yeah, she's been through a lot. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people are in that same category, but I have had people at different points in the book where we haven't had as many reveals be like, oh, I don't like her. And so, but then they end up liking her at the end because we go through some of those reveals and they learn more about where, what she went through, how she was used, and how, how could you really qualify as a human being, being used in such a manner throughout your childhood, and then reconciling the damage that's in the past. How could you view morality in that set when the entirety of your youth was spent gamifying murder? Hmm. And that's the idea of, of sympathy, even though we can see that she does wrong, we can still sympathize with the concepts of her struggle with it and trying to escape her reality. Oh, there you go. Um... 
Not so, yeah. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Um, so did as you were writing Edith's, Edith's character, and did you how did you wonder how far to take that character to not make her unlikable? Was that something that you had in your mind of how far you're willing to go with her to not cross that line for most yeah, people? That was a delicate. It was like it felt like it was wa walking on a razor edge for sure because. There are some scenes where I describe in a rather vivid detail some of the things that she does. I think that um, the, the scene where she kills a beast in a meadow, that scene is a good depiction of that narrow walk because on the one hand, you have a pretty gruesome scene. And on the other hand, you have this very natural element because she has carnivorous implants and other things like that incorporated into her at a genetic level and you have to contend with the fact that she's going to have impulses and concepts that are different foreign to us even alien to us even yeah. uh, that propel her on a path that we might not choose and so the hunt the concepts of you are the enemy these are what we are i have to do this that compel compelling aspect to her character is obviously center point at the end and mm. how she literally cannot cease her own existence because of her innate drive for life being insurmountable yeah yeah that, that was not very eloquently put but <laughs> but i think you get the point there's there's an inbuilt limiter that she's having to contend with in trying to reconcile that which can at times deal with things on a gruesome level. Yeah. Another character that I was curious, I wanted to ask you about is uh, Tekrin. And if yeah. you, there's any inspirations for that character, anything that, what was in your mind as you were, as that character was going through your, your process? Tekrin, uh, he is a fun character. And the more reviews and people I talk, I read and people I talk with, a lot of people really like Tekrin. And I, I like Tekrin, yeah. <laughs> he is, <laughs> he's a fun, and kind of understated character. He has a lot of depth that obviously I haven't revealed everything on him yet. Um, but when it comes to motivations, he was just the initial guy that Edith was going to meet when she was dropped on this alien planet. He developed into something quite profound as I wrote the story. And that was an organic process for me. Originally, he was just going to be another uh, sort of her buddy in the prison. But after I changed, the narrative, the story, everything from that initial thought of what the book was going to be, he developed into his own thing. He didn't really come from a specific place other than I liked the, the way his joints worked in the legs. I thought there was a really neat uh, composition to a rock band, like a springy boulder. I thought that was fun. So <laughs> at the time, uh, that's where I was going with it. But I liked the idea of him being um, sort of this wise strange rock man and that's really <laughs> where he came from and allowing him to develop as uh, sort of the sage character that counters edith's zany out of control personality and there's another uh, i was curious because there's as as gruesome and as brutal and unforgiving as the book can be there's also a lot of humor in it um yeah. and there there's a few that kind of caught, kind of snuck up on me because I wasn't expecting it. Which one? 
I was wondering, it's a lot of the interactions that Mrs. Uh, Philly Wolf has, because a lot of the dialogue, a lot of that back and forth uh, just got uh, chuckles out of me, because was, <laughs> was that was that intentional to try and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can't have something as heavy hitting as some of the scenes in this book. I mean, you have a scene where a six-year-old's literally being operated on against her will. Yeah. You have scenes in this book that are incredibly gruesome that involve a tremendous amount of loss of life. And if you don't have the levity of the fact that these are prisoners trying to escape and they're making light of the situation. Just imagine every time you were in a situation that you couldn't escape from, the only way you get joy in life is if you can somehow find a way to laugh about the hardships. Yeah. And so it made sense for the characters to be a little snarky, to be a little bit sassy in their exchanges in order to create that realistic depiction of hardship. I don't know if you've ever been around military folk. There is a lot of humor that goes yeah. along with the hardship. So I, I wanted to include that. Yes, there has to be, right? Like you said, there almost has to be just to to keep people sane. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I was wondering about uh, about that because it, it seemed like she, that, that character... Um, like the puppet master it's kind of the uh like the boss you know she was pulling strings and she was manipulating manipulating and so yeah. I, I thought um i was wondering if that character specifically those interactions were were the outlet for that kind of levity mm -hmm. yeah which scene the one with uh mrs Fellyworth being um, an orchestrator of things or are we talking about dalton and, and edith's literally puppeteering of mechanical devices i got a little lost in the weeds there yeah both um mostly just her dialogue um and i was trying to, i thought i had it marked i was trying to find it here but i don't think i do because i was reading i was switching back and forth as i went to work i was reading my kindle and then i'd come home and read on my reading my <laughs> yeah so I, I, sometimes I, I miss my my tabs yeah belly wolf's exchange especially with grog and Emmanuel, are some of the most enjoyable scenes for me to write for sure, because that trio just gives me the giggles as well. Yeah, Grog especially got a, a few guys out of me too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought I had it, and I'll just the artwork is just so. Oh, wrong way. <laughs> and Mrs. Bellywhoop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought I had it, but there, yeah, there was there's a few that got a, a lot of laughs out of me. Which, do you remember the scenes we could just? Um, it was, uh, Greg was saying, um, I forget exactly what he said. There was something about, she, she was giving him a task and he oh, had a response that was just <laughs> hilarious. I had to read it a few times to make sure I, because it kind of it, it snuck up on me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I think it was the first first quarter of the book, I think, just sure, yeah. uh, as they were learning about Edith and getting information. But yeah, I was, but there was a few. Um, I think I know this thing you're talking about, and that yeah. one was funny. Yeah, me, at least the right. You never know what's going to land with people, um, and the most fun I've had writing is occasionally my uh, whoever is going to read it, whether it's a friend or a family member, but in particular my husband. If he barks out laughing, that I'm like, what's what? What was it? What did you laugh at? Like I'm like, let me write it down. What did you laugh at? Because I'll sneak in things that I find humorous all over the place. But you never know which is gonna click with the reader at which point. And so I just try to put in as much levity as I can 
given all of the darker subject matters that I'm continuing with in the book. And and Blade, as I am I pronouncing that right, Blade? Yeah. Okay, I was afraid to mispronounce it. No, you're fine. Um, what was your process with him and and that whole because that reveal? How did you? Uh, what was your plan for that? I guess you're from beginning to end. Did you have a, a course that you wanted him to take and, and, and reveals for him? Blade was a fun character to build and to to grow because you have essentially what is the beginning of life in the form of an artificial intelligence um, enabled to do a task that is monstrous. That is the whole point of it. Lucian created him or enabled him to become what he is for the express purpose of shirking off his own duties and being a synth, which is usually to do a lot of harm. So <laughs> he, in particular, his modus operandi as an AI is to be exactly as Edith is. And so having that duo and why they, I believe, uh, come together so interestingly, in my opinion, is because he's looking to the only source in his environs that closest, that emulates his own uh, purpose closely as he can in, mm. in natural form. But she herself has been so heavily augmented, it's really just a matter of which monster has been created to do what. They're both rather interesting in that respect. Um, but I like AI, and a lot of people talk about learning machines and, and teaching AI, but I've always found the idea of having AI be built directly from the same way we raise ourselves, meaning human uh, everyday having impulses and, and uh, sensory input that allows you to understand and contextualize your surroundings having him be incorporated into Lucian at a genetic level so that he does get the same sensory uh, responses, he does learn in the same way a human might, gives him all the more tangibility even though he is artificially created. And that was fun to play with. Yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, there was a few deaths uh, that, like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which ones in my mind? There was uh, the, forget there, um, let me see if I can find it. I think I, think I have that. Uh, it was towards the, towards the beginning, but um, there's a few that really like, wow, you're not not playing around. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of set the table. So like crippling at the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, and there was there was a scene specifically that I really that I really loved is or there was a the way that you wrote it. It was um, it reminded me of, of Neuromancer, the writing in Neuromancer. My husband says that. That's why I need to read it. He says it reminds him of Neuromancer. Yeah, it does, and the, the writing in it and the the descriptions of it um, really gave me a clear picture of because it's it's in this this uh, you know in space and and with gravity and everything else and and smoke and and these uh, suits and everything else, but it really I had a clear picture in my mind of what it was. So, I, how was how was writing those kind of scenes? Something that's that's this source of fiction and, and this out of this world kind of thing. How do you, how do you write those scenes and make it so the reader understands what you're describing? Are there certain descriptors or anything that you do to, to help? Yes. Um, and this is another one of those situations where you have to kind of dance on an edge. Cause I don't want people to read a, an action sequence and feel, um, awful. Like it's a very careful balance. And my, my editor actually had a funny thing to say about it. He's like, I'm showing monstrous things, but somehow making it palatable. Um, <laughs> and, 
And that is the, the goal. So, for example, there's a scene where uh, sort of a freezer is opened and quite a bit of uh, awful is spilt around. And describing enough of that to give you the idea that this is an unpleasant thing to endure as a character, whilst always not also not trying to make your reader vomit, uh, is an important balance. You don't want to be harping on the nappy. So you talk about it enough to give them sensory feedback so they understand that there's this is a malodorous, awful, icky situation, but not so much harping on it to where that's all they can think of and it gets to them at a, a too deep of a level. So that's the balance that I try to make is deep enough for them to understand and feel it at a level that feels almost intimate, but not so deep to where they're sick to their stomach. <laughs> I don't want people to feel awful when they read the book, but I do want them to understand if, it, if it's a critical moment and there's something awful happening, an appreciation for what the characters are going for is important. Yeah. I think it was a good balance. I don't think it was too much. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> for for the beginning, the beginning especially, as far as visuals go, in my mind I had, I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Pitch Black. I may have. It sounds familiar. I think I have. But the beginning, problem. yeah, it's uh, when it's with, I think Vin Diesel's in it. It's from the early 2000s. The Riddick series? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I kind of had that in my mind of when, she, when at the very beginning, the this dangerous planet with all these creatures and all these, you know, and the, the suns yeah. and everything, they kind of get, I kind of had that um, visual in my mind, but I was curious if that was something that, or kind of what you pictured in your mind. The, uh, I definitely draw upon the idea of a monster planet. That's not a new idea. There are plenty of, just like Riddick and, and Pitch Black, that one um, was fascinating because at night, that's when all the, yeah, when the lights went out, bad stuff happened in that specific movie, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. And what yeah. I'm there. Um, so there are definitely similarities when it comes to a monster planet, but I liked the idea of playing with something like a semifluid and having things that are near aquatic floating through the air and being in this otherworldly it brings in the element of alienness that i wanted to make clear at the beginning like this is another world not just oh this is another red planet depicted in space i wanted it to have this hidden fauna that was going to emerge and show you another world that's so different from the way we are and live that it kind of preps the reader for the many different alien races that are in control of this uh, multi-galaxy civilization. And it also allows you to understand just how open the possibilities for exploration there, is, there are. In the I'm left leaving available to the reader in this book. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> it's, this, it's this planet that's trying to kill you is kind of what constantly trying to kill you is but it's kind of pretty at the same time you're yeah. just like oh this is cool oh but that's going to kill me we should probably run that yeah. <laughs> wonderstruck and terrified at the same time yeah no I, I i definitely got that feeling like you're you feel comfortable but you're not don't feel too comfortable because you'll die if you're not yeah. careful yeah so <laughs> Fear is there, but it's also kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, it's nice, but, you know, you don't want to die. So yeah. be very careful. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I did have that kind of with the suns and everything in the, in the sky and kind of, and I guess it's because there was, it's a prison, it's a prison, and I, my mind went to that. But there was kind of, I was wondering if that was, 
in your mind as you were writing that beginning scenes? If, what was in my mind during if, uh, if there was any ins specific inspirations on on kind of uh, okay. environment i was playing with certain very obscure metaphorical kind of ideas of beginning and end because the beginning and end have some mirroring elements with tekrin and edith and her being carried there are a lot of, and if you look through, there's a lot of little hidden mirrors within the whole narrative. And the idea of two sons um, being this sort of, I was playing with things. And I thought the idea of having two sons come together, and she's almost seeing double when she comes out of her prison tram at the very beginning. So mm -hmm. you're seeing more than what is there, but then you realize, no, there is just more there. So I was having fun with the idea of, what is perceived and thinking that you maybe you aren't seeing what you're seeing. And that's why I used two sons. I thought it was a neat um, ocular metaphor. <laughs> yeah, no, that was cool. I, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I liked it. Cool, I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I, like I said, I, I just try to go along for the ride because I tend to get lost in science fiction. So, but no, I just, I'm just, I just said, I'm going to trust Kayla. She's going to explain everything. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to. I don't have to know everything right now. It'll it'll make sense. So yeah, it was it was a fun ride. So I'm I'm glad I was able to read it and glad I was able to to chat with you for a few minutes for for almost two hours. Oh gosh, I am so sorry. I do ramble. I have the gift of the gap. No, um, no, that's I, I love the I love the long form type of conversation. So this is what I enjoy doing. It's it's probably my favorite part of doing the YouTube stuff is just chatting like this and hearing about these books I enjoy and these authors I want to hear more about. And it's always fun to hear, like I've watched several of your author interviews, and it's always fun to hear what they have to say, because like you said, we all have a different approach, and we all have a different experience that we've gone through in publishing our books, and it's really neat to get all of those facets from your channel. Yeah. A lot of fun. Yeah. You do a good job. So you are well, quite good at this, I would say. I hope so. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to get better every time. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, you're building up quite an awesome following. Yeah, I would say that you're doing a great job. It's been fun chatting with you as well, and I really appreciate you taking the time to give me my first interview. Hopefully yeah, I'm, I'm just a, I always say I'm just a random YouTuber, and you're an award-winning author, so <laughs> I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule with your art and your writing and your and your uh, work and family time, so I want to thank you for taking the time to... Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. I enjoyed every second of it. And, uh, oh, cool. I uh, wish you luck on editing this two-hour video. <laughs> oh no, it's 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 funny because all the all of the videos I've done, all the I like to call them conversation videos, but all the ones I've done is uh, I, I've watched them all probably four or five times just because. That is so much. I don't want to sound like a narcissist, but it, I just enjoy the the conversation and the, the back and forth. So. I can totally understand that. I feel like anytime you create something, you, you want to make you, there's so much to analyze. And learn from. I feel the same way. Yeah. That's what makes you good at this. Maybe. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just, I just, I, it's funny because the YouTube stuff is a lot of the time a one way. It's, it's a one way street, and I like the, the conversation and, and talking with people and the discussions, and that's what I enjoy. Is, is that so? Maybe I'm just weird, but. No, I, it's such a fun experience to actually answer people's questions in a, a live video, not live in the sense that it's streaming presently, but that is going to be posted, having that interaction in sort of a relaxed environment where we're just laughing and talking about a book or how to make books 
that's fun. It's yeah. not so formal. It allows people to just kind of tune in as they will yeah. and enjoy it. So yeah, well, I had a bunch of questions that I was thankfully able to get to all of them. And I want to thank uh, Beth Ann and, and Joe for submitting their questions. But I want to just thank you again for, for taking the time. And usually whenever I do these, I clear out my, my afternoons because you know, I never know if they'll be 30 minutes or two hours long. So, but I, I, I enjoyed every, every minute. I want to thank you again, because I really do appreciate you stopping by and answering some of my silly questions. Oh, they weren't silly. <laughs> no self-deprecating humor needed. This yeah. has been an absolute blast and I have enjoyed every second of it. Thank you so much for having me on your channel and I will continue to watch as one of your many fans. Cool. Um, so if someone's if someone wants to connect with you or, or find out more about what you're doing or what you're writing, how would they find out more? Um, you have a social media or? Yeah, website? I have a Twitter account. Um, you can always at Kayla and ask me something or I'm on Goodreads if you want to message me on Goodreads, but only like questions that are on a professional level, obviously. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it's all me weird stuff. <laughs> I don't know if I should even ask, but I'm sure you get a lot of weirdos. Um, if you get anything, you just block it. But uh, mostly those uh, those uh, platforms handle it for you. Oh, okay. Like, but okay. yeah. So essentially, you can, if you would like to ask me questions about books or about my own work, I am on Twitter, Goodreads, and YouTube. I have some videos. You can always post a question on one of those platforms, and I generally respond relatively quickly. And uh, yeah, I'm always excited to hear people's questions about either my books or being an indie author in general. Yeah. Something that I really like about your, your YouTube channel and just your presence on, on Twitter He's really supportive and it's someone that if I was trying to get into writing, I would come to you because you seem really um, welcoming and supportive. So I'm sure someone will be, will be bugging you soon with questions. It's not a, it's not a bother. It's fun yeah. to see if people actually want to create stuff because we all have things that we want to do and finding people to support us, uh, whether it just by answering a question or by being like my husband is for me, an awesome alpha reader. Or <laughs> it's just amazing to have those people in your life. So if I can answer a question that allows someone to go and make a novel that people then enjoy, I feel like I've done a good deed that day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, thank you again. I, um, thanks for getting, thanks again for stopping by, and let's do it again sometime when you your the next book is is being ready to to hit the the <laughs> shelves the uh, the Amazon shelves or wherever it ends up being published. You know, for yeah, sure. Let's, let's do it again. <laughs> I would be happy to. This has been fantastic. Yeah. Cool. Well, I want to say thanks again and thanks everyone for watching. I appreciate it. And be sure and read Escape Reality. It's an awesome science fiction thriller. Go check it out if you haven't already. So uh, thanks again, Kayla. It has been awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you guys for sending in questions. It's been a blast. Yeah.